Welcome back to the MCG Pediatric Podcast. My name is Brooke Pace Clotermus, and I'm a medical student at the Medical College of Georgia. During today's episode, we will review the importance of nutrition and exercise for patients with cystic fibrosis, or CF for short. We will also be discussing the exciting research that is being done here at Augusta University regarding exercise as a marker of morbidity and mortality in CF. I'm honored to have Dr. Katie Mackey and Dr. Ryan Harris to help with our discussion today. Dr. Mackey is an Associate Professor of Pediatrics in the Division of Pediatric Pulmonology and is also the Director of the Cystic Fibrosis Center at the Children's Hospital of Georgia. Welcome, Dr. Mackey. Thanks. It's great to be here today. Dr. Harris is a Professor of Medicine at the Georgia Prevention Institute at the Medical College of Georgia at Augusta University. He is a clinical vascular and exercise physiologist and is the founder and director of the Laboratory of Integrative Vascular and Exercise Physiology, or LIVE-P, at Augusta University and is one of my personal mentors. Welcome, Dr. Harris. Thanks, Brooke. I'm glad to join the discussion. Together, Dr. Mackey and Dr. Harris have collaborated on several studies to understand the role of exercise, or lack thereof, in patients with CF. The field of cystic fibrosis has evolved tremendously since I've started some 20 years ago working with population. How we treat CF today is so different from 30 years, 20 years, and even just 10 years ago. That's a great point. Thanks to the incredible efforts of researchers, we have a deeper understanding of the pathophysiology and genetics of CF. This has led to the development of innovative therapies that are improving the quality of life of those with cystic fibrosis. And as these patients live longer, that means ensuring optimal nutrition and exercise becomes even more important aspects of their care. That's right, Brooke. Proper diet and exercise can improve the clinical symptoms of CF, help decrease disease-associated hospitalizations, and prevent morbidity and mortality. Dr. Harris, let's get our discussion going by reviewing some basics about cystic fibrosis. Sure. Cystic fibrosis is an autosomal recessive inherited disease. That means the child has inherited two mutated genes, one from each parent. So Brooke, what are the chances of a child having cystic fibrosis? Well, when you have two parents who are carriers of a recessive gene, there is a 25% chance of having an unaffected child with two normal genes. There is a 50% chance of having an unaffected child who is also a carrier, and a 25% chance of having an affected child with two recessive genes. Great job, Brooke. CF is also more common in Caucasians. Approximately 1 in 25 Caucasians are carriers of the CF gene, and approximately 1 out of 2,500 Caucasians actually have CF. So how is CF diagnosed? The diagnosis of CF is by a combination of a clinical evaluation, genetic testing, and a sweat chloride test. There are also prenatal tests that can detect CF in utero during the first trimester. That's so important. This gives parents time to prepare and gather a multidisciplinary team to help care for their child. That's right. Newborns also undergo testing for CF through the newborn screening program in all states. If prenatal testing or newborn screening identifies a patient who may have CF, the patient then undergoes a sweat chloride test for confirmation. So what exactly is a sweat chloride test? The sweat chloride test is a safe and painless procedure that has a 99.7% specificity for CF. The test measures the amount of chloride in the sweat. Patients with CF have high levels of chloride in their sweat compared to those without CF. That's good to know. I know from medical school that cystic fibrosis is caused by a mutation in the gene that encodes the CF transmembrane conductance regulator protein, also known as CFTR. Is there just one mutation that causes CF or are there multiple? 
Well, to date, there are actually over 2,000 CFTR mutations that can actually lead to variability and loss of function of the CFTR protein. Wow. So what exactly does the CFTR protein do? And why is there a problem when a mutation is present? The CFTR protein is an ATP-binding anion channel found mostly on the surface epithelial cells, but also exists in other cell types, including vascular endothelium and even skeletal muscle. So if the protein is not fully functional, there is inadequate ion and water transport across effective cell membranes. This then creates an osmotic force, resulting in the production of thick, isotonic secretions on the surface of the effective organs. So how do these thick secretions affect the body? I know children with CF often have pulmonary problems, right? That's right. Most people first think of the lung problems in those with CF. The thick mucus that is produced in the lungs makes it difficult to clear. This then leads to increased risk of harboring infections. They also tend to have decreased exercise capacity. But like Dr. Harris mentioned, many other organs can be affected. Patients with CF also often have pancreatic insufficiency and are at risk for meconium ileus or intestinal obstruction. Many of these abnormalities increase the risk for malnutrition. So why are those with CF at risk for malnutrition? Patients with CF are not able to absorb fat or protein adequately and unable to absorb fat-soluble vitamins sufficiently. And all this leads to nutritional problems and poor growth. Why does this occur? Well, the thick mucus produced clogs the ducts of the pancreas. This prevents digestive enzymes from reaching the intestines, where they normally help break down food for absorption. This means that pancreatic exocrine function is compromised or even sometimes non-existent. Oh, I see. So that's how pancreatic insufficiency results in maldigestion and malabsorption. What are some of the symptoms of pancreatic insufficiency? Symptoms include poor weight gain despite good intake, abdominal pain, gas, and bloating. Stools are frequently loose, foul-smelling, or fatty-appearing, known as steatorrhea. I know the pancreas is also heavily involved in glycemic control, since it's involved in releasing insulin and glucagon to maintain blood sugar. Can CF also affect endocrine functions? That's a great question, Brooke. Complications from pancreatic insufficiency over time includes pancreatic inflammation and fibrosis. This causes impairment of the beta cells, which are responsible for producing insulin, and leads to a loss of endocrine function. I've also read some studies that demonstrate that optimal nutrition status is correlated with better clinical outcomes. That's right. Appropriate nutrition can lead to better lung function, decreased frequency of infections, and fewer hospital days. For this reason, it's extremely important to achieve adequate nutrition as soon as the diagnosis of CF is made to optimize growth development. So Dr. Mackey, how do we ensure that our patients are growing adequately? Are there any specific guidelines that we can use to monitor growth for these kids with CF? The Cystic Fibrosis Foundation, also known as the CFF, recommends monthly growth and nutrition checks until six months of age and then every two months until two years of age. After the first two years, the CFF recommends nutrition and growth monitoring every three months for the entirety of the patient's life. Is there a specific goal weight or growth velocity that clinicians should monitor for? For children less than two years of age, the goal is to have a weight for length of greater than or equal to the 50th percentile for age. For children 2 to 18 years of age, the goal is BMI greater than or equal to the 50th percentile. That's really helpful to know. Yeah, but remember, these are only guidelines. 
It is still very important to view each patient based on individual growth trends and needs. The growth velocity should be considered in addition to the body mass index or BMI, since a BMI alone may overestimate nutritional status among these patients. It's also very helpful to analyze body composition or muscle mass compared to just looking at the fat mass. Maintenance of muscle mass is critical for people with CF. Did you know that increased muscle mass has been associated with better lung function and better exercise capacity? Both of these are markers of disease-associated morbidity and mortality in CF. I didn't know that. That's extremely interesting. So what specific nutrition-related issues should a clinician focus on? Like we mentioned before, poor growth and poor weight gain is due to maldigestion and malabsorption. Electrolytes and other vitamin and mineral levels should be checked routinely to target any specific nutritional deficiencies. Is there any treatment that can help these children absorb nutrients better? Children with pancreatic insufficiency usually need to take pancreatic enzyme replacement therapy. Do these children normally have other vitamin deficiencies? Yes, they do. Those with CF are at risk of vitamin deficiencies, especially fat-soluble vitamins A, D, E, and K. Children with CF may also have poor bone health due to poor absorption of vitamin D and calcium. This leads to risk of fractures and osteoporosis. So what you're saying is all children with CF need fat-soluble vitamin supplementation with A, D, E, K. Is that right? Exactly. Essential fatty acid deficiency is also another complication in some patients with cystic fibrosis. These include linoleic and alpha-linoleic acids that are necessary to build other critical fatty acids. Supplementation is essential for any child with CF exhibiting poor growth. On the subject of adequate nutrition, children with CF have increased energy demands to meet goals of adequate growth. In other words, people with CF require more calories than other individuals. This is because of the increased energy demands due to coughing and increased work of breathing due to chest problems and repeated infections. Many parents of children that I've seen in clinic find it really difficult to feed their children a wide variety of nutritious foods, even if their child does not have a chronic illness. Cystic fibrosis does not exempt a child from being a picky eater, and children are also less likely to eat well when they don't feel well. Is there any advice that we can offer to parents of children with CF that may help them with this? The CFF recommends targeted behavioral feeding practices for these children. These practices involve positive reinforcement from parents in response to good eating behavior, ignoring improper eating behavior, and having set meal times lasting no more than 15 minutes with several set snack times in between. What about formal feeding therapy? Child behavioral therapists can also be utilized for children that have particular difficulty with nutrition. And don't forget about occupational therapists, physical therapists, and speech pathologists. These individuals can help if there's an issue with motor skills or swallowing. What if all of these interventions don't help? Behavioral therapy fails to work. Appetite stimulants can be prescribed. However, there's minimal evidence to support their efficacy for kids with CF. The most common appetite stimulants used in these patients include ciproheptadine, agestrol acetate, and ronabinol. So we just discussed essential nutrition supplementation for kids with cystic fibrosis. What other nutritional considerations are there? Children with CF are at risk for being hyponatremic. Brooke, why do you think that is? I would imagine that individuals with CF are at risk for salt loss because they lose ions through their sweat at a higher rate than those without the disease. Correct. In patients with CF, sodium and chloride are coupled together as salt and excreted together in excess from sweat glands. This can lead to hyponatremia. Clinical symptoms might include confusion, nausea and vomiting, and even seizures or coma may occur. 
How can we prevent hyponatremia in this population? The CFF recommends sodium chloride supplementation in infants less than six months of age, one-eighth teaspoon of salt daily, and one-quarter teaspoon daily for infants older than six months. It's also recommended that older children and adults should drink sports drinks if they're exercising or in a warm environment. Are there any other vitamins or minerals that we should worry about? Zinc is an essential nutrient that should be monitored and treated if deficient. Low zinc can actually lead to decreased growth and poor immunity, both of which are critical for patients with CF. If a child with CF is falling off the curve or showing a poor growth rate, the CFF recommends one milligram per kilogram per day of elemental zinc for six months. And what about tube feeding for children with CF? When should a clinician consider that? Great question. CFF recommends tube feeding when a child is unable to consume adequate calories despite evaluation and treatment by a multidisciplinary CF team. What kind of factors are considered? Multiple subspecialty providers as a team work together to consider the physical and behavioral aspects of nutrition. Questions might include, is there any other medical reason this child is not able to grow and develop? Are there any social barriers to this child obtaining appropriate nutrition? If the answer to either of these questions is yes, we try to treat these conditions first. What happens if we've ruled out or treated these conditions and the child is still not growing well? If children have exhausted less invasive treatment options, we consider enteral feeding. A nasogastric tube or NG tube can be short-term nutritional rehabilitation and doesn't require surgery or anesthesia for placement. These are ideal for children who have become acutely nutritionally deficient, potentially due to a pulmonary exacerbation, but generally maintain a good caloric intake. NG tubes allow the child to be fed acutely and are easily inserted and remove minimal discomfort. I know that nasal polyps are common in children with CF. Does this impact the ability to place an NG tube? Yes, nasal polyps are a common feature found in patients with CF and may prevent proper or comfortable placement of the tube. An NG tube is also visible and may contribute to low self-esteem for a child. If an NG tube is not tolerated, the next step would be to consider a gastrostomy tube or G-tube. The G-tube is more discreet and hidden under the patient's clothes. G-tubes sound like they would be more comfortable than NG tubes. Why don't we try a G-tube first? G-tubes are invasive since they require anesthesia for placement. There's also a risk of infection since they're inserted into the skin and form a connection between the outside world and the GI tract. However, they are ideal for long-term nutritional supplementation in children who are chronically unable to maintain good caloric intake. So that allows the individual to enjoy eating, but supplements for nutritional deficiencies if the child does not eat enough by mouth to meet needs. Yes, that's right. That's great to know that there are more options for children with CF to meet nutritional goals. We've had such a great discussion on nutritional aspects of care in CF, but I want to shift our discussion now to the importance of exercise tolerance for children with CF. This likely isn't the first thing that many clinicians may be thinking about when they are managing a patient with a chronic illness. Dr. Harris, can you tell us about exercise tolerance and why it is important for individuals with CF? Sure. Exercise tolerance is an individual's ability to exercise at a maximum workload consistent with their peers and their ability to maintain that level of physical activity. Exercise capacity is measured by using a variable called VO2, which represents how much oxygen uptake is utilized when an individual is engaging in intense exercise. Essentially, VO2 is an objective measurement of exercise tolerance and it actually correlates with disease mortality and risk of hospitalization in patients with CF. So you're saying that a child's level of exercise tolerance strongly predicts their disease morbidity and mortality? Yes. 
Interestingly, several studies have shown that exercise tolerance is a greater predictor of disease mortality than even FEV1, though this is controversial. One study published in 2005 found that among children with CF, the initial measured VO2 peak was not associated with a higher risk of death. However, the rate of decline in VO2 peak over time actually was predictive of mortality. So do people with CF have lower exercise tolerance than people without this disease? Unfortunately, yes. Studies have shown that people with CF have a steeper decline in exercise capacity compared to their peers in the general sedentary population. And what factors contribute to this decreased exercise capacity? Nutrition and exercise are extremely interconnected. Several studies have found that well-nourished patients with CF have a greater exercise capacity compared to those who fail to maintain adequate nutrition. And fat-free mass, essentially muscle mass, is a strong predictor of maximal workload. What types of exercise should we recommend for these children? There's generally a misconception that someone has to get on a treadmill or lift weights, go to a gym to exercise. As long as the individual is active, that is the most important part. So playing outside on a jungle gym, going on a walk with the family and the dog, or even riding a bike through the neighborhood are excellent forms of exercise for children. That's great. So they can have fun and increase their overall health. I would think that exercise would also help to clear the thick mucus from their lungs. Is that right? There is evidence to support exercise as an airway clearance technique, with some data suggesting that exercise can promote the movement of mucosal cilia clearance. We do know that viscosity of the mucus decreases significantly when patients with CF rotate in running exercises. The debate of whether or not exercise can replace airway clearance is ongoing, and I imagine it will be a debate for some time. What other benefits does exercise provide to people with CF? It's been demonstrated that regular exercise can significantly slow the rate of decline in lung function based on the value of force vital capacity, or FVC, or even forced expiratory volume, also known as FEV, which means that the regular exercise can have a significant impact on lung function in CF. Interesting. It seems logical to me that decreased lung function would be the main reason for exercise tolerance in CF. Is this true? Actually, no. Although the mechanisms behind exercise intolerance in patients with CF are not fully understood, Recent studies have shown that exercise capacity is a marker of morbidity and mortality in CF, independent of lung function. In other words, lung function is not the only factor driving exercise intolerance in these individuals, especially in patients with mild to moderate disease severity. So what are some factors that contribute to this exercise intolerance? Our Laboratory of Integrated Vascular and Exercise Physiology, or LIVEP for short, here at Augusta University, has demonstrated that patients with CF have conduit vessel dysfunction, microvascular dysfunction, impaired regulation of blood flow during exercise, impaired oxygen uptake kinetics during exercise, and even impaired skeletal muscle function. In a paper we recently published, our group described that children with CF have impaired oxygen transport and utilization of oxygen by exercising muscles. This study also found that exercise capacity was significantly lower in the patients with CF only when we controlled for muscle mass. This not only highlights the importance of nutritional status, but also demonstrates that individuals with CF maintain adequate muscle mass and proper exercise capacity are at decreased risk for disease-associated mortality and hospitalization.
This is such promising information for children with CF. So how can we monitor for exercise tolerance in these children? Great question, Brooke. Outside of very niche exercise testing in a laboratory setting, we have no good way to really keep tabs on our patient's physical condition. The six-minute walk test may be of some utility, but fails to provide the wealth of information obtained by the gold standard graded maximal exercise test that we could obtain VO2. Through testing in the live P, we provide individuals with CF of all ages the ability to know what their exercise capacity is and how it changes over time and in response to different stimuli. We have a robust population of children with CF that are treated at the Children's Hospital Georgia, and many of them are offered the option of participating in an exercise study on the same campus where they receive medical advice and treatment. Ongoing studies in the live P are seeking to explain the mechanisms behind impaired oxygen transport and utilization. Differences in muscle function and the impact of sleep and physical activity on spirometric rebound following hospitalization from acute pulmonary exacerbation in patients with CF. But more research to come. That's great to know. We will include a contact and link for more information on the studies in our podcast description and show notes in case anyone listening has patients that may benefit from exercise testing at the live peak. Well, it's time to wrap up our episode today. We've covered a lot of information, so let's summarize what we have discussed. Cystic fibrosis is an autosomal recessive inherited disease caused by a homozygous mutation in the CFTR gene. This gene is located throughout the body, which means that many organs are potentially affected. However, the effects can vary due to many different phenotypes associated with CF. Early diagnosis is important for both family and medical caretakers to begin initiating interventions to ensure optimal management of the disease. Children with CF require higher calorie diets to maintain adequate nutrition and sometimes may require enteral nutrition to meet their caloric needs. These children also may need vitamin and mineral supplementation. Their growth and progression should also be monitored closely, preferably in the setting of a multidisciplinary team of subspecialists. Exercise is also extremely important for people with cystic fibrosis. An exercise capacity is a marker of disease-associated morbidity and mortality. The mechanisms behind exercise intolerance in these patients is multifactorial. But regular exercise and physical activity has been associated with improvement in clinical symptoms of CF. Thank you, Dr. Harris and Dr. Mackey, for this great discussion today. An additional thanks to Dr. Rebecca Yang and Dr. Janelle McGill, who provided editing and peer review of today's episode. Thank you for listening to this episode from the Department of Pediatrics at the Medical College of Georgia. If you have any comments, suggestions, or feedback, you can email us at MCG pediatric podcast at augusta.edu. Remember that all content during this episode is intended for informational and educational purposes only. It should not be used as medical advice to diagnose or to treat any particular patient. Free CME credit is available for today's episode. Follow the link on our show notes and website. We look forward to speaking to you on our next episode of the MCG Pediatric Podcast.